Hi, I'm Lara Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I had the pleasure of joining a fascinating discussion recently that was so enriching and interesting that the foundation decided to release it as a podcast too. Please have a listen. My name is Chagai Matal. I'm the executive director of Plus 972 magazine. Um, and I am here to moderate this discussion in this very pivotal moment for Israel-Palestine. Um, just before we start, a very brief background for anyone who has been paying attention. Uh, just over the past two months in Israel-Palestine, we had the fourth round of elections in Israel, uh, probably heading toward this round. We had the cancellation of the Palestinian elections that were set to take place after 15 years since the last election. We had an, uh, an escalation basically initiated by Israel in um, Jerusalem, mostly around Bastogay, evictions in Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, we we've seen Palestinian solidarity and popular resistance that was rising through Jerusalem and across um, other parts of Palestine, regardless of the different areas and segmentation that we usually see affecting Palestinian popular resistance. Um, we've seen, obviously, a, a terrible assault on Gaza, leaving more than 250 people dead uh, in the Gaza Strip uh, with Hamas rockets on Israel, killing about 13 Israelis. Uh, and we've seen uh, an almost unprecedented wave in, in recent history of intercommunal violence of Jewish Israeli gangs grouping together, attacking Palestinians, and basically uh, with the support of police, uh, lynching and, and pogroming Palestinians, some cases of Palestinians attacking Jewish Israelis as well, attacking uh, Jewish communities. Um, and Right now, the past two or three days, we're seeing a massive wave of arrests uh, within Jerusalem and throughout Israel uh, in Palestinian communities, targeted at Palestinian communities with the stated goal of silencing and stopping that wave of resistance. So all of that has been the past two months, most of it the past two or three weeks. So it's been very, very intense, which is why I'm very happy we have this wonderful group of people here to um, make sense of it all. Um, joining us today are Amjali Raki, an editor and writer uh, with us at 972 Magazine, who's also policy analyst at the Think Tank in Shabaka, who's previously been uh, advocacy coordinator at the Legal Center Adala, and has written for the Long London Review of Books, The Guardian, Le Monde Diplomatique, and many, many others. Ahmed Al-Nawouk, uh, uh, is joining us from Haifa, I should say. Uh, Ahmed Al-Nawouk, originally from Gaza, currently in London, is an advocacy and outreach officer at Eurimed Human Rights Monitor. Uh, was the inspiration for the original project manager uh, of We Are Not Numbers, a platform for youth from Gaza to tell their stories. Uh, and recently co-founder of Beyond the Wall, a Hebrew media outlet that tells Palestinian stories from Gaza and in Hebrew and amplifies the Palestinian narrative. Um, joining us also is uh, Lara Friedman, who's in DC. Lara is the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, um, with more than 25 years of working in the Middle East foreign policy arena. Lara is a leading authority on US foreign policy in the Middle East, 
with particular expertise on the Israeli uh, conflict, Israeli settlement, Jerusalem, and the role of the US Congress. Uh, she's published widely and uh, is someone who US uh, Congress people and their staff seek uh, her guidance regularly. So again, a very, very noble group of people. I want to start, Ahmed, by turning to you and asking, we've seen rounds of violence in Gaza before. This is unfortunately not something new. These Israeli assaults, um, this back and forth between Israel and Hamas. What was different this time? What did you see that was new that we haven't seen before? Well, thank you so much at first for, for having me. Uh, yes, I totally agree you, uh, with you. We have seen so many unprecedented events uh, in this time. And many, many new things happened before the, the escalation in Gaza started and as it went and after it went. Uh, for the first time ever, we have seen that uh, after the Israeli military stormed the Aqsa Mosque and uh, started displacing Palestinians from Sheikh Jarrah, we have seen popular Palestinian movement rising and protesting against the Israeli occupation, both in, in Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem and in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and even inside uh, the Israeli cities, what, what we call the Palestinians uh, in 48. This was unprecedented and it never happened. And it was um, a proof of the failure of the Israeli policies of fragmenting the Palestinians and separating them. Uh, for the first time, we've seen Palestinians in uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque after the uh, the uh, assaults on uh, worshippers in Al-Aqsa Mosque. We have seen the Palestinians rising and chanting and asking for Gaza to interfere in this, um, uh, to, to stop the Israeli violations. We have never seen this before. And for the first time, uh, the escalation in Gaza started after something outside the Gaza Strip happened, which is an escalation in, in, in Jerusalem. The Palestinians in Jerusalem, uh, asked uh, Gaza to interfere so many times. And I believe that after that, after uh, the Hamas leadership heard the Palestinians chanting and asking for interference, they were forced to respond. They could not see the Palestinians asking for their for their uh, retaliation and interference and, uh, and uh, stop by. So Hamas after that, for the first time in its history, started to uh, fire muscle, uh, missiles uh, at Israel, uh, be, because of something that happened outside Gaza, because of what happened in, in Jerusalem. And Hamas retaliated uh, very strongly. Um, uh, th that happened for the first time. And it uh, it proved to the Israelis and to, to the Western community that the Palestinian people are uh, one body, are, are united, despite the, the, the political differences between Hamas and Fatih, the West Bank and the, uh, the, U, uh, the PA, the Palestinians are united and they're fighting the same fight against the Israeli occupation, the Israeli apartheid, the Israeli displacement of the Palestinians. And we have seen that, um, uh, for, for example, what we have seen, uh, the, the videos of Jacob, the Israeli settler in Jerusalem, saying that if I don't steal this house, someone else will steal it. This this summarizes the Palestinian struggle since uh, for the past 73 uh, years. So we have seen that the Palestinian people rising against a systematic Israeli policy of displacement and, uh, uh, and terrorizing the Palestinian people. Uh, for the first time during this escalation, we have seen that the Israelis started by what they ended from uh, in the past uh, escalation by tower, by leveling uh, residential towers, by uh, bombing um, media uh, offices, by bombing the PE, the PA, the 
the associated press and uh, Al Jazeera. This did not happen before. Israel bombed nearly most of the uh, mo most of the um, uh, press offices in the Gaza Strip, and it was basically in order to stop the um, uh, stop the media from covering the Israeli brutality against the Palestinian people. We have seen also something uh, new from Hamas after they fired. Uh, missiles at the south of, of, of Israel and Ramon um, uh, airport that did not happen before. And we have seen that Hamas power uh, have increased um, significantly. Uh, we have seen for the first time that the EU stating that they will have eventually to talk with Hamas directly or indirectly. They have never said that before, but they have recognized that there is another power away from the PA that controls the West Bank, that there is another power in the Palestinian territories, which is the, the, the armed resistance. And whether we like it or not, they they, they are going to, to talk with Hamas eventually. And we have seen for the first time that the US President Biden, although he uh, explicitly said that Israel has a right to defend itself, but, uh, but, but he, he said, and he encouraged the ceasefire since day number one. So there are many things that happened for the first time. And I believe all of these uh, things that although the, the Palestinians are the victim, the Palestinian civilians are the, victi the victims, but eventually we are going uh, into the right direction. The world have seen uh, the Israeli brutality for the first time. I've, I've been in, uh, in a protest uh, a week ago in London and more than 200,000 protesters uh, came and raised the Palestinian, Palestinian flags and advocated for the Palestinians and asked for sanctioning the, the Israeli government for the first time in history. And we have seen reports that this uh, protest, that a huge protest never happened in the history of the UK uh, in, in accordance to, to the Israeli-Palestinian uh, protests. We have seen protests in, in Europe, in France, in the US, hundreds of thousands of, of protesters marched in streets in the US demanding for uh, stopping the Israeli brutality and occupation uh, against the Palestinian people. So yes, there are so many unprecedented events that happened. It's a new, um, many new things happened uh, during the past two two months in Israel and Palestine. Thank you. I hope that answered your question. Definitely. Thank you, Ahmed. Uh, Amjad, on to you. Um, as Ahmed was saying, we've seen um, a wave of solidarity from from forty eight Palestinians uh, that we don't really remember, at least not since. 2000, uh, when the Second Intifada broke out. Can you explain why this happened? Um, what was new this time? What motivated people to go out on the streets? Um... Uh, first, thanks, Hagai. Thanks to my colleagues here and to everyone watching. Um, uh, while echoing a lot of things that Ahmed uh, just explained right now, uh, I think for me, the biggest thing that has been different is less so the dynamics per se, because in many ways there are historical precedents to what has happened uh, these past few weeks, though this is in many ways much more intense with some elements that have shifted. Um, but I would say one of the biggest factors is actually the lens in which the people on the ground and people outside are perceiving this. And specifically, um, I think what has radically changed is a embedded understanding, whether some people are in denial or not, of how much we are really back into a, a, a quote unquote conflict operating under a single colonial apartheid regime from the river to the sea. I think that is the recentering of that by Palestinians, by the Israeli state, by the international community, you know, whether they like it or not, I think that has been very fundamental. 
Um, and for me, you know, to, you know, we can kind of look at this as sort of like two sides of the same coin to demonstrate the extent to which the past few weeks have emphasized that singular regime. Uh, one side of that coin is uh, what we can describe as sort of the synchronization of Israeli state violence from the river to the sea. And the other side of that coin is a synchronization of Palestinian resistance. And these are things that Ahmed has just uh, spoken about. Um, so in terms of the issue of like the synchronization of state violence, what we've really seen these past few weeks more clearly than ever, again, this is not a new dynamic, but what's been more evident than, uh, than ever is that for a long time, everyone kept thinking that, you know, that the quote unquote conflict fell along the green line. It fell along the 1967 borders around that armistice agreement uh, back in like pre-67. The fact that we saw um, Israeli state violence operating inside Israel among Palestinian communities in such strong, you know, in such severe force has shown the extent to which the borders, especially the borders that are dictated by Zionism and by the Israeli state ideology falls around, not between that 1967 line, but between Jews and Palestinians from the river to the sea. There's a reason why as fighter jets were bombing uh, large parts of Gaza, you also had the Israeli army in the West Bank firing at demonstrators with live bullets at the exact same time that Israeli police were also repressing demonstrations inside Israel, inside 48, as we describe it, against Palestinian citizens, even in quote unquote mixed cities like Haifa and like Lid. All these mechanisms of state violence and state repression were functioning at the same time. And those borders were literally between whether you're a Palestinian citizen living in Haifa here, or whether you're a Palestinian in Gaza or in the West Bank. So that was very evident these past few weeks. And that's a very critical point to emphasize. And again, that flip, the flip side of that coin is synchronization of Palestinian resistance. As Ahmed said, you know, this, uh, it's not that it's not the first time that Palestinians in 48 have come out uh, at the same time as Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and even refugees abroad. Uh, it's one of the most intense times in almost two decades, for sure. Um, but what's made this particularly significant is that this mobilization began in Jerusalem, a centerpiece of Palestinian identity, a centerpiece of Palestinian history and politics, which for a long time has you know, been brutally repressed, tried to be sidelined, especially through the process of Israeli colonialism in the city, to try to erase it from the Palestinian, from the Palestinian political movement. And so to see that, the fact that there were demonstrations in protection of the old city, Al-Aqsa, Damascus Gate, and especially how it tied in with the Palestinian resistance that's going on in neighborhoods like Sheikh Jarrah, like Silwan, it reunited these Palestinian uh, communities and sectors within the city of Jerusalem, which in turn helped to re-entangle the Palestinian community at large from the river to the sea. Um, this, I think, is what really helped to kind of revive this common pulse among the Palestinians across the Green Line. That pulse is always there, and it, you know, it kind of weakens and drops sometimes because of the fragmentation policies that have operated and because of different priorities. But I think that that huge revival of that heartbeat has been really fundamental. Um, and it's uh, and again, it's not the first time, but it's certainly one of the most intense and fascinating um, moments in this uh, in these past few weeks. That is very, very certain. Uh, thank you for that. Um, Lara, on to you. I mentioned before all the things that were happening here in Israel, Palestine, uh, they were not being missed in the US. It seems like the developments we've seen recently in American politics 
in Congress, uh, in the media as well, things are not as they used to be. Why is that? What what have things looked like and why have things changed um, so drastically from what we remember maybe from the last round of assault in Gaza in 2014? Um, why do things look so differently? Thanks for the question. It's, um, it, it's, it's, I don't think there's a simple answer. And listening to Amjad and Ahmed, it, it's striking to me that the things that are different on the ground, which it, these are really powerful statements you both made, what's different here is, is a whole different category of difference. I don't, I don't think the, the, what has changed here, whether we're speaking about Congress or the media narrative, is really to do with the sort of erasure of the green line and recognizing that this is really a river to the sea issue and this question of apartheid. And we can, we can talk about you know, that, that, that question of terminology. I, I think that's a piece of it. I, I think more than that, what you have are some sort of some forces of history that are working in tandem with what's happening on the ground. And in the United States coming after four years of Trump and a grassroots growing sensitivity towards oppression and authority and particularly with Black Lives Matter and all the awareness that has sprung from that. Um, and that paralleling a Trump administration which took a position vis-a-vis -vis Israel, which was so far to the right of even where most of the Jewish American community is um, in terms of you know, whatever, it, really a greater Israel vision and, and really fairly well aligned with maybe even the Kahanas inside Israel. So you already had sort of a, a break from the way people, I think at a, at a grassroots level or at a general policy level saw US, saw Israel compared to 2014. On top of that, you have a confluence of events on the ground, which have been, you know, the, the visuals coming out, the visuals, the narrative, the voices out of Israel, Palestine, and particularly from Palestinians, and you have to remember, we've just come after you know a year where the question of whether or not Israel's policies constitute apartheid, whether you're talking just about the West Bank, as some Bezalel said, or, or not that was Nehasvard's um, piece, or you're talking about the entire area, as Bezalel said, and as Human Rights Watch said. I mean, this is now in the public discourse in a way that it wasn't before to have a legitimate conversation about what Israel's policies are and a legitimate conversation about both sides of the green line here. Then you escalate to where things got with uh, the, really the beginning of Ramadan and the visuals related to you know, closing of Damascus Gate. All of that was present in the news cycle here. And, and it was present, and I, I wanna give a shout out to 972 and to Shebeka and to other groups. We have seen um, for, I want to say really for the first time, I remember years ago, someone saying that, you know, Hanan Ashrawi coming on the scene was a game changer because Americans could hear a Palestinian voice and she spoke English well and she articulated these powerful statements and it really changed the way people thought about Palestinians. And, and that was true, that's a different era though. And in the current era, you know, voices like Amjad and Ahmed and, and the whole array of voices coming, which cannot be just dismissed. They are articulate, they are legitimate, they are expressing things that maybe make people feel challenged or uncomfortable, but that they can contend with intellectually. It has, I think, had a real impact and it dovetails really um, seamlessly with the debates about privilege and entitlement that people are having on the ground and the debates they're having about the, the correct use of authority and force. So I think you really have a confluence of forces here. 
And what it's really re the result is as this this I don't call it a conflict because it, a con conflict is such a it's a it's the, there's such it's an impoverished word when talking about what's happening on the ground between Israelis and Palestinians. But when this latest crisis bubbled up, you had I don't want to say perfect media coverage, but you had a lot of media coverage, and that media coverage featured a lot of Palestinian voices, and you had members of Congress coming to this who are highly educated. Right, it's not just a member of Congress issuing a statement saying, "I'm concerned about you know Palestinians." They're saying, "Here's what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah. Here's what's happening in Silwan. Here's the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Here's why I'm concerned." I mean, powerful statements, deeply informed, including by members of Congress who have been engaged directly by people on the ground about these issues for years. Um, so the, the the tenor of the the criticism and the concern coming from Congress is, I think, different from what we've seen before. Um, the, the shift within the Democratic caucus in Congress is striking. The space that has at least, I want to say it's been created, the space that has existed over the past few weeks for members of Congress to be more critical or pushing more on Palestinian rights is unprecedented. I don't know if that will be sustained. I hope it will. Um, the pressure that they have put on the Biden administration, I should add that into it as another factor. One thing that I think is, I don't know if it's unprecedented, it feels to me unprecedented, is the extraordinary um, absence of the Biden administration in from very early on in trying to tamp down the fighting, right? I'm not saying they should have, they, they should have come in and waved a magic wand and say, everything's fine, stop fighting. But I can't remember a previous administration from either party that sort of adopted a policy of staying on the sidelines and sort of letting things bleed until arguably they said, okay, we've picked our moment to intervene. I, I have some doubts about that narrative as well. But the absence of the Biden administration, I think, created more space for Congress to be more forceful in engaging than they might have been otherwise. And all of that is to the backdrop of what Ahmed noted, which is the extraordinary um, demonstrations on the ground. You know, normally when there is uh, this kind, when there's conflicts, you know, rockets from Gaza and Israel, whatever, on the defensive, that's the, that's the framework, you, that, that's the narrative. You see nationwide, you know, small or large demonstrations of support for Israel, and you see a few small ones for Gaza that don't, for Palestinians, that don't get a lot of press. What we saw in the US and in Europe was a lot of huge um, demonstrations in support of the Palestinians, I think they really dwarfed the, you know, stand with Israel, Israel right or wrong um, demonstrations. To the extent that today, and here's where I'll end, those who want to, um, you know, the, defend the Israel right or wrong position aren't even very much trying to defend Israel's actions on the ground. They've shifted to attacking the pro-Palestinian forces trying to argue anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism. In effect, trying to sort of, in my view, trying to, and I'm not saying there isn't anti-Semitism out there. I, I think there are anti-Semites who are happy to jump onto the bandwagon of Palestinian rights in order to be anti-Semites. But defending Palestinian rights is not anti-Semitic and the effort to, to divert attention, to deflect attention from what Israel's policies are on the ground in East Jerusalem, the West Bank, Gaza, and inside the Green Line, to deflect that to saying anyone who's criticizing Israel is an anti-Semite, and this is an entire movement of anti-Semites, is quite striking. Um, and I think that really is the battleground um, in for this next phase uh, in the international community. Agreed. Um, as, as you were talking about the shift that you're seeing in the media, you said it's not perfect coverage, but 
there's so much more tension. I was thinking just how far we are here in Israel from that, just how the Israeli media uh, has not moved a bit uh, from where it previously was, the, the level to which it's been um, enlisted, mobilized to serve the, the um, army narrative of things, uh, the complete lack of voices from Gaza uh, for Israeli media consumers. Uh, is, is There's been such a gap between that, what we're seeing internationally, that it, that's really striking. Um, Ahmed, passing on to, to you, Right now, at this moment, we've seen the Palestinian elections canceled. Uh, one of our uh, attendees here is asking, um, how is that affecting the dynamic? And also, I'll combine that with a pre-prepared question of, what do you see in terms of public reaction to leadership? Mostly uh, Gaza, where you're, you're originally from, uh, the attitude to Hamas was kind of leading this, but also toward Fatah and the PA, um, who I think were overall pretty absent over the past few months, except for canceling the elections. Um, so, so how do you see what's happening with leadership there? Uh, thank you. So we as Palestinians, we always have a leadership crisis. And uh, the problem we have a crisis in leadership is because of Israel. Israel is always imposing its own agenda on the Palestinian leadership. Like the, the PA can never um, act independently from Israel. They're always forced to, uh, to comply with what Israel uh, forced them to do. So we always have a problem with the leadership. And the last time we had an election was 15 years ago. Um, and then after after this election, Israel did not uh, agree on this election, so they imposed uh, a siege on Gaza and and all of that. But after 15 years of uh, the absence of election, uh, Abbas and the Hamas and all the Palestinian factions agreed that finally they will uh, there will be an election, and we were all very happy and excited. But then again, Israel. Uh, refused to allow the, the, the Palestinian people in Jerusalem to go to elections, so Abbas uh, canceled these elections. So the cancellation of the elections um, actually uh, decreased the popularity of the, of the PA of uh, Mahmoud Abbas, and it kind of increased the popularity of Hamas uh, within the Palestinian people because the Palestinian people saw that uh, the problem was not with Hamas, the problem of the uh, internal uh, segregation was not because of Hamas, but it was because of Abbas, because he eventually succumbed to the Israeli uh, um, uh, de demands to uh, stop stop the, the 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 elections. So this kind of popularity for Hamas and the unpopularity for Fatah intensified after the last uh, escalation in Gaza. Because when Israel started to storm uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque and started to uh, displace the Palestinians and ethnically cleanse them from Jerusalem, we have seen no actual uh, act from the, the PA and Mahmoud Abbas. I'm not here criticizing the PA or Mahmoud Abbas because actually they, they can't do anything. They don't have any kind of power diplomatically or uh, or militarily to, to stop Israel from evicting the Palestinians and displace them from uh, from their homes. But eventually, there was no concrete action from from the PA led by Mahmoud Abbas and Fatih. And at the same time, uh, people on the streets started to to ask Hamas to intervene. So eventually, Hamas was made to intervene, and and after it in, uh, intervened, its popularity increased so so much within the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and even between the, the, the Arabs and Muslims around the world, because you know, uh, Jerusalem for Muslims around the world is very sacred, it's very holy. And 
saying that some group, whether we like it or not, defended or retaliated or acted uh, for 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 Jerusalem. This increased its popularity uh, within the Palestinian community and outside the Palestinian com uh, community. And after that, after the escalation, we have seen total margin marginalization for the PA and for Fatih and Mahmoud Abbas from the international community, from the from the Israeli side, from the Egyptian and the Qatari side who mediated for a ceasefire. And we have seen them only talking with Hamas. Of course, the, 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 the Israelis and the EU and, and, Israel and America did not talk directly to Hamas, but we have seen them uh, talking with, with Qatar and, uh, and in Egypt, in which they talked to Hamas after that. So the, the game player was with Hamas and Fatah was marginalized. And this all of this decreased the popularity of, of the PA. And I have said that in many articles before, these rounds of violence only enforce the right wing, only enforce Hamas and only uh, benefit uh, Netanyahu Bibi in, in, in Israel. And it, it downsides the, the, the effect and the, the power of the other uh, left wing, whether it was in Israel or Fatih, in, uh, uh, Fatih and the other uh, parties in Palestine who advocate for, for only peaceful solutions. Now, it, it pains me so much to say this, but only we have seen lots of interaction, lots of media coverage to the Gaza Strip only after there was bloodshed on the ground. And this somehow uh, enforced the narrative that the West and the world will only look at the Palestinians and, put the, and um, care about the Palestinians when, when there is bloodshed, when there is missiles fired in Gaza and outside Gaza. And that's why some kind of um, popularity increase for, the, uh, for, for Hamas and for the armed resistance. This is how I personally see it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, it's very helpful. Um, Amjad, Ahmed just mentioned the tragedy of Palestinian leadership. Uh, he was mostly talking about 67, but from knowing you and knowing your writing, I think you also share that feeling to an extent within 48. Can you say what you're seeing right now in terms of 48 leadership? What are people talking about? What are people seeing? Uh, where is the Palestinian leadership within Israel right now, throughout everything that's happened in the past few weeks. Yeah, um, it's been it's been very fascinating to watch in '48 because, the, you know, it might be a strong statement to say, but in many ways these demonstrations were almost in defiance of the national Palestinian leadership in Israel, as much as it was against the Israeli state. And what do I mean by this? Um, when you went to these protests, literally from the north to the south. Um, in 48 and also in the West Bank for that matter. Um, you know, and Gaza, of course, was in the midst of this massive bombardment. So you didn't see the same kind of protests. But at all these demonstrations, you could almost see how much they were completely, almost predominantly led by young grassroots activists, many of them unaffiliated with political parties or, you know, asserting themselves in ways that were not trying to associate them with political parties. Um, and you, you could even see stark images in 48, for example, where there was a demonstration uh, organized by the high follow-up committee in Sakhnin, one of the uh, um, major Arab cities, where the entire front row of the demonstration were these, these kind of old Arab men above the age of 50s versus a lot of the, most of the protests that have been going on over the past few weeks, and even places like Haifa or, and in Jerusalem especially, where it's these young 20s, 30s, young Palestinians who've 
really spent their lives kind of pushing for more radical um, political analysis, who are much more assertive about their Palestinian identity and their connections uh, to the wider Palestinian people. And it was extraordinary to see. And in many circles, there was even an attempt to make sure that, that the traditional political figures, whether it was the high follow-up committee uh, in 48, which is supposed to represent the community, uh, or, it was, or if it was the, polit the political parties that make up the joint list or formerly of the joint list, um, th there was this like generational, um, and this generational political challenge to how our resistance is being is being determined, um, and you can and this is again not necessarily a new factor. Many demonstrations of the past couple of years, incidents like the Proverb Plan uh, during the 2014 Gaza War, even during the March of Return, you know these protests began as saying that as many of these youth-led grassroots activists saying we want to take the mantle of this resistance that we can no longer buy what our traditional leaders have been selling. And this is especially in 48, whereby, you know, you, uh, Hagar, you mentioned like the elections, Israeli elections, whereby you had this mass turnout for what was, you know, what was in a more united joint list um, with 15 seats and they played their political cards in the Knesset. You know, there's a big debate of the utility of that. But in the end, even with such a high number in the Knesset, the third largest party, the Palestinian citizens were still ultimately dismissed. And the list broke up. The right wing had this divide and conquer policy uh, around the Arab community. The Islamist party broke off, uh, you know, to pursue its own path in a more like Arab-Israeli type strategy. And so the evidence almost showed young Palestinian citizens that we can't do things the old ways. And uh, whatever our political leaders might have offered, we now need to create an alternative to that. And this is what we were seeing on the streets. Um, and you know, there's no clear demonstration of this. And uh, then the general strike, the general strike that was launched last Tuesday, um, whereby traditionally in '48, every you know, for the past couple of years, every time a strike was announced, hardly anyone followed it, and it was only within the state of Israel. What the activists did was that they took that date that was announced, and they said, "No, we want to strike from the river to the sea." And all our whether it's Palestinian refugees or activists in solidarity abroad. We want, this is an all Palestinian thing. And this is something that the grassroots activists, these young grassroots activists push for. And again, it was sort of like taking this, taking this moment saying, no, we're the ones who are calling the shots this time. And there are big question marks about, you know, how do you sustain this? And how do you channel this into, uh, you know, continued organization? You know, these young activists know that protests are not enough, but, uh, but seeing the success that they've done to kind of recreate this unity, to revive the pulse and to see young people who've never been involved in political protests, for example, saying, yeah, we want to be part of this movement, um, something extraordinary. And it's led, it's led down at that, from the bottom and pushing upwards rather than from the top to the bottom. I think this is something that's especially important for media to understand whereby, yes, there are kind of high profile political figures in the Palestinian community in 48 in the West Bank, whether it's the PA or the joint list, or even Hamas, um, and it's obviously a very complex debate, but those grassroots activists are where the microphone needs to go to. Those grassroots activists is where the spotlight needs to be. Like, it's not a cliche to say that they're the future. They are the, very much the present of the Palestinian movement. Um, and, you know, time will tell if that can, uh, if that can continue on in, um, in, more, in more kind of sustainable political forms. Very much agree. And if you're followers of 972 Magazine, you probably know that that's the kind of reporting we're trying to do uh, and, and it plays a central role in that. Um, Lara, I wanna go back to you with 
one a question that I was thinking about, but also we've been getting literally dozens of questions from, from uh, attendees here about one of your remarks before about Biden actually sitting back, not doing anything, being absent. Um, while at the same time, what we have seen were statements by the Biden administration, Biden personally, saying that he supports Israel's right to self-defense, that he basically condones of Israeli actions in Gaza, obviously sending weapons to Israel as and sending aid as the campaign was happening, and uh, at the same time defending uh, Israel with the U.S. veto in the U.N. Security Council 14 to 1. Um, so how do you account for that? And how do you call that absence is one question that a lot of people have been asking. Um, and then the other question, before we take more questions from the, the audience, and there's quite a few, um, how do you see the dynamic within Democratic Party playing out right now? And where is it going? Are the forces that we're seeing uh, on the rise, are they strong enough to change the government's position on Israel and Palestine generally? Or is this kind of the scope we can expect for now? Thanks, and thanks for giving me the chance to clarify that. I saw that in I saw the, some of the questions in the Q&A. When I say absent, I meant absent as a positive force for tamping down violence. Um, the Biden administration was obviously very much present as a force I talked about earlier for like letting things to continue bleeding. Um, the fact that the U.S. was actively involved in preventing U.N. Security Council resolutions on this as opposed to leading on that, which is, I think, what you would have seen in some previous administrations. And maybe you might have seen resolutions that they led that you would not have, not everyone would have loved, but at least there would have been the sense publicly that they were putting pressure on the Israelis to stop bombing Gaza. Um, it was exactly the opposite. And that's what I mean, absent in the sense of, of being a constructive force, um, at least putting any pressure on the Israelis to, to, to hold back and to stop. Um, and I think that is, that I, I don't wanna say authoritatively that is unprecedented. I'd have to go back through the timeline on previous engagements, but based on my experience and memory, I can't think of a president who chose to basically say virtually nothing initially. And then what they said seemed to be saying, keep on doing what you're doing. We're not gonna get in your way and we'll act as the blocking back to make sure no one else gets in your way until you choose the moment when you wanna stop and then we'll claim credit for helping get a ceasefire. I mean, I, I, I can't think of a precedent from either party. I find it really quite, quite baffling. Um, you know, in terms of whether or not the space that's been created within the, the Democratic Party and at the grassroots, whether this can change U.S. policy, I think is impossible to answer. Um, and I am, I, I am hopeful, but not optimistic um, for a few reasons. Um, you know, we live in a world, Israel's just come off four elections in, in two years. Um, the U.S., we're on our, we're now in the um, countdown to midterm congressional elections, and we're already in the countdown to the next presidential election. And anyone who's paying attention to the, the tenor of the comments coming out on Israel from Republicans and from some, some of the more um, pro-Israel and pro-greater Israel elements of the Democratic Party, th there is no doubt that this will, th this current debate that we're having here will figure into the politics of the next two election cycles in the US. Um, for folks who are looking for a potent issue to use to attack Democrats and to get Democrats to attack each other, 
um, you know, Israel-Palestine is a surefire tool. It has been in the past. And based on this crisis and the statements made around it, I think that there are folks on the Republican side and on the more greater Israel Democrat side who are eager, who are just chomping at the bit because they know we can use this and we can, we're going to use this to accuse progressives of being anti-Semitic and to really um, put pressure on the Democratic Party to go to an even worse position in the next two election cycles. Um, I, I am not in on the inside with the Biden folks, but when I look at the way they're handling Israel-Palestine, my observation, my conclusion as an observer is that, you know, I think they're partly driven by this is where the president is. The president knows Mr. Netanyahu well, and I think he's comfortable with those politics. But beyond that, I think it looks to me like they are navigating this issue tactically rather than strategically. And the tactics are all geared towards the politics of the next two election cycles. So that doesn't give me a ton of hope. On the other hand, you know, enough grassroots mobilization, you know, you end up with a Bob Menendez making a statement of concern about what Israel is doing in Gaza, which was quite a surprise. When Bob Menendez is to the left of the Biden administration, it is suggestive of the possibility that the Biden administration is, is overcorrecting on this. Um, so I, I don't know where that goes, but I'm, I'm deeply concerned. I'll just add, to add one more thing and, and really picking up on the point that Amjad made, the fact that this is now a very, the flavor of this issue on the ground in Israel-Palestine is very much a river to the sea issue. And it is being led by younger generation activists who are not bound in their own minds or politically by party affiliations or anything else to the two-state framework, I think is on the one hand, extremely exciting and, and, and is, is a breath of fresh air and light on what was a very stale debate for a very long time. At the same time, I think it actually makes it potentially much more challenging for the Democratic Party and the grassroots if the allies on the ground have adopted a framework which in the United States is still sort of you know, anathema, right? Talking, there, there's the beginning of talking about different things than two states and you know, Palestinian voices and Peter Beinart. And it's, it's wonderful that you're getting that breath of fresh air beginning here, but that's not permeating the Hill and, and that is, because that thinking requires a, a rethinking of end state solutions, um, it is deeply challenging. And I think it actually makes the political dynamics in the US um, for this conflict even, even more challenging. Um, but like I said, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm never optimistic, but I am, well, optimism is earned. I can be hopeful now. We'll see if optimism is earned later. Thanks for that. Um... Ahmed, on to you. We, we are now at the phase where we're taking questions from our attendees. We have several dozens of them. So in advance, I wish to apologize to everyone. We won't get to ask everyone's questions. Uh, we might ask, uh, try and answer some of them by mail later. Uh, but Ahmed, some of the questions coming up, and these exist in public discourse regularly, are about Hamas shooting rockets at Israeli civilians, um, over 5,000 rockets, uh, as one of our commentators has said. Um, why is it, how is that viewed by people in Gaza? Um, and both from the side of the attack on Israeli civilians and in terms of the uh, casualty uh, levels, the, the, the death and destruction that this brings from Israel as it attacks Gaza. Uh, in each of these rounds, how is that perceived by people in Gaza? 
Thanks, okay, um, I think uh, this is a very important question, but it's uh, a bit of problematic because it does not tackle the, the roots of the problem. Uh, we are always starting when, when the Palestinians react rather than uh, uh, asking questions about the act itself or the roots of the problem. We, the Palestinian people, have a problem uh, with, with occupation that has been uh, going for the past 50 years. We have a problem with refugees, over 7 million Palestinian refugees. We have a problem with, with, the, with, the, uh, with the collective punishment of the Israeli uh, uh, government over, uh, over the Gaza Strip. We have a problem with apartheid. Uh, recently, B'Tselem and the Human Rights Watch accused Israel of, of, of perpetuating the crimes of uh, crimes against the humanity of persecution and apartheid. We have a problem with with the with with the Nakba, the Palestinian Nakba that displaced Palestinians from their homes and lands and made them refugees outside outside their country, outside their homes. And this Nakba is still ongoing until this day. We have so many problems that started before Hamas started firing rockets. So I think if we are going to to answer a question we should answer the question that of the roots of the problem what are the roots of the problem the problem that are we are dealing with an occupation with an apartheid government we are dealing with ethnically cleansing the palestinians from their homes and lands that happened 73 years uh, years ago and it's still going on it's happening in in jerusalem that's happening now in the west bank as it is taking more lands of the west bank uh the the, the pa 30 years ago agreed to uh, to the two-state solution and uh, agreed uh, to give up 78 percent of historic palestine but israel never agreed to give the palestinians their homes a, a state and sovereignty over their own lands we have so many problems that we have to tackle and answer before we answer about Hamas rockets because Hamas, the, all of Hamas and the Hamas rocket is uh, relatively a new issue. And if if I'm going to answer about this specific question, why Hamas fired two four thousand rockets into Israel, it's 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 easy. They are they fired these rockets after. Israel uh, provoked the Palestinians in Jerusalem after they displaced Palestinians in Jerusalem after they uh, they invaded uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque. But the problem is not with Hamas rockets. Or the problem is not it did not start only two months ago. The problem is uh, is has been ongoing for the past seventy three years old, uh, seventy three years ago. This is our problem, and these are the questions that we have to answer. Hamas is uh, uh, relatively new. Not all the Palestinians support Hamas, uh, but, but all the Palestinian people are suffering because of the Israeli uh, government practices against the Palestinians. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Amjad, one of the questions we've seen uh, coming up is basically right now we're seeing this wave of arrests. Uh, we're seeing massive oppression of this new popular movement that's coming up based in the grassroots, as you've described. Um, is that deterring people? Where is the movement right now? We're talking about massive protests that took place um, over the past few weeks. Is that still happening? Are people afraid uh, to be arrested? What is the response on the street? Yeah, um, just to kind of uh, explain to everyone. So on Monday, I think, uh, the Israeli police basically publicly announced that they were leading this campaign called Operation Law and Order, which in their terms was essentially to uh, try to arrest about 500 Palestinian citizens of Israel, who they regard as almost as troublemakers uh, in the protests over the, over the last few weeks. 
just also bear in mind that in the two weeks prior to this announcement, the police had already arrested about more than 1,500 Palestinian citizens, uh, not just at these protests, but also in their homes, also kind of literally on the streets. And, you know, some have been somewhere in detention for a long time. Some were kind of uh, uh, kicked out the, the following day. Um, and this is not the first time that the Israeli police have done this to Palestinian citizens, but it is one of the most intense uh, arrest campaigns. And especially this week's kind of this week's operation uh, in which the police were almost explicitly, they were explicitly saying that we're here to settle scores and we here we're doing this as a method of deterrence. The police were very unabashed about this. And to announce that you're about to arrest 500 people, you know, the goal is very clear. You're trying to terrorize a population. You're trying to intimidate and scare every activist, every person who's thinking about being an activist, any person who even so much as says that they're Palestinian inside Israel. The police are aiming, we're aiming for us. Um, and this is backed from, you know, from the political brass at the top, you know, from the politicians all the way down to the, to the police officers. And you could feel it on the ground, but to see that continuing, even especially after the ceasefire, shows again the extent to which the state is really prioritizing silencing Palestinians no matter where they are. And that includes if you have Israeli citizenship. Um, and whether or not it's working, the short answer is no. There's what we've been seeing over these past few weeks is an incredible fearlessness among these young Palestinian activists. In the end, there is always that fear. You know, there's a fear of being brutally assaulted by a police officer. There's a fear of being thrown into a detention cell and being denied seeing a lawyer. There's fear of even worse, of being shot by, by cops as has happened also in the past few weeks. Um, that fear exists, but what we've been really, what's been really incredible um, is seeing that generation really defy that fear. And people are still coming out and they're still finding ways to assert themselves, literally whether it's going down to the streets to painting murals on walls, to communicating uh, on social media consistently, like there is this assertiveness that, that we're seeing develop. And this has been a longstanding trend of this younger generation of the past two decades. And now we're seeing it really in full force. Um, and, you know, we start to see in the coming weeks how the Israeli authorities are going to continue this. It's not just going to stop at arrests. It's about indictments. It's about new laws that the Knesset might pass to um, you know, to, to attack or restrict these kind of demonstrations. Um, it's the new emergency or security regulations and the militarization of the Israeli police that will, that will continue, which was happening these past few weeks, which might continue. All of this is essentially a state-sponsored terror. They want us to be so scared so as not to assert ourselves. But, you know, as Ahmed was saying, you know, we've had more than 70 years of this experience. We've had more than 70 years of the state brutally trying to make us forget that we're Palestinian. But this younger generation, it's not just continuing the legacy of their old generation, they're being even more confident and being even more assertive than their previous generation. So it's not going away. Um, and it might ebb and flow and, you know, the methods to silence might be more effective at certain times, but just because we've had sort of quote unquote, you know, it's very relative term, the quote unquote quiet, uh, as Israelis like to refer to it, does not mean in any way that the Palestinians are interested in remaining quiet. It means we might be holding ourselves up for a bit, but we will be coming again. Uh, and we are not going away. The Nakbi is not going away. Israel's violence from displacement to brutality, et cetera, is not going away. And as long as that's going to be the case, and as long as the rights Ahmed uh, explained are not being fulfilled, 
then we're going to keep fighting too. Thank you. Um, Lara, two foreign policy questions have come up. Um, and I think you're the right person to answer. Um, one is about the Blinken mission. Um, what can we expect from that right now? What um, would we want to expect? And what can we realistically expect from the Blinken mission um, is one question. And then the other is about um, the Abram Accords, which the US was kind of a sponsor for. Um, where are they in all this? Uh, how do you see the relationship between the signing of the Abraham Accords? What's happening now? Did that enable or it had no effect? Or how do you see the relation between that and recent developments? So on, on the Blinken mission, I think it's already pretty clear what we can expect from that. Um, I mean, on the positive side, they went. So that shows that they're engaged, right? Um, they met with Isa Amro, which is a lovely thing. Um, I wish they had gone to Sheikh Jarrah. They didn't. Um, I wish they had done anything in terms of an action which showed some pushback to the Israeli state um, for what Israel's policies are doing. And, and they chose not to do that. Um, what they chose to do in terms of trying to demonstrate that, that the US and the Biden administration are a constructive force is announced that they'd be reopening a mission for the Palestinians, which to be clear is not a reopening. The US Consulate General in Jerusalem was not a mission to the Palestinians. It was a mission that covered Jerusalem and the West Bank. That what they are essentially saying that they're going to do, which I still am curious how they're gonna do it without Israel supporting it because they can't, um, is open essentially an intersection that will just talk to the Palestinians. And that's nice, you can call it independent, but as long as you leave West Bank settlements under the embassy, then the US policy is still treating Israel as the sovereign between the river and the sea. That is not a rest restoration of status quo ante. That is a continuation of the Trump status quo and elevating a sort of special envoy um, category almost for the Palestinians. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know if that's constructive or not. Beyond that, you've had the announcement of, of aid, which is being suggested publicly by the administration is new aid. Um, my understanding, um, talking to folks who are deeply immersed in the funding part of this, this is, this is not new aid. This is money that's previously approved by Congress. It's, it's something that administrations all do when they're trying to show that they're being responsive to a crisis. They scrub the budgets. They look for money that they can sort of call new and give it a new name and say, look, we're doing something. Beyond that, they're talking about it as if they're, they're talking about just in weird terms. I keep reading that this money is going to be, that, that they're saying that they are going to because they can't support Hamas, they're going to be putting this money through the PA. But of course, Congress has made it illegal to do any funding that directly benefits the PA. And I don't see how you could fund through the PA and not directly benefit them, which means they're going to have to come up with some new narrow framing, you know, medical aid or World Food Program aid or maybe UNRWA. Um, but it's not new and it's not reconstruction aid. It's, it's you know, all money, all money that helps Palestinians in this dire situation is obviously important and welcome, but it's not a, it's not a significant shift in US policy. And I, I think unless the US is willing to actually address the problematic way it dealt with the rebuilding mechanism for Gaza last time, which was a disaster, I would call it a mechanism to not rebuild Gaza, um, unless they're going to deal with that in a different way, I think this is really just window dressing. That actually dovetails nicely with the Abraham Accords. You know, the Abraham Accords, you know, the, the nicest thing I think a lot of us could think of to say about the Abraham Accords beyond the fact that, yay, peace between 
people that aren't fighting, yay. Um, but you know, it, one could say, well, hypothetically, these accords hold the promise of a now more energized Arab partner that the Israelis care about more, who then could exert some leverage to prevent the worst things from happening. That's now been tested. Um, so for those of us who put that out there as a hypothetical benefit of the Abraham Accords, um, I would say the past few weeks suggest that it is not one. Um, more than that, if you look at the US approach, which again was to not intervene to put pressure on Israel to stop the fighting, not intervene with our partners in the Arab world in any significant way, including Abraham Accord signers in order to stop the fighting. And now it appears, you know, I wish all, all luck and success to the, the newly named next ambassador to Israel, but the next ambassador to Israel is coming specifically as someone who has a business and finance background, not a foreign policy person who is in any way engaged in or interested in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's his main selling point. If you sort of look at his resume is that he can perhaps be someone who can expand on the successes of the Abraham Accords. Um, so that is you know, not a, a source of great optimism here either. That I, I have heard for years, and I'm sure most of you have, people who suggest that the way to get, the way to cut the Gordian knot of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is to bring in people who know nothing about it who look at it from a business perspective or something. And, and those people who are given important jobs like at the quartet tend to, after a few years, you know, throw up their hands in, in frustration and go back to their lives of making good money somewhere else and tend to leave things worse off than they found them. Um, so. Thanks. We are quickly running out of time and there are still dozens of unanswered questions. Like, like I said before, we will try to answer some of these by mail later. Uh, we'll do a final round with our panelists. It'll probably take five more minutes than we had originally planned or more than that. So uh, we thank you for your patience. Um, I'll start with a short uh, answer myself to one of these questions we've, we've seen. Um, basically, talk. we've been talking a lot about things that have been happening in the US and Palestinian communities. Uh, we have not talked much about um, Jewish-Israeli communities and things that have been happening here. Um, this webinar doesn't have the, the, we don't have the capacity to go deep into that issue. Uh, what I can say to some of the questions that came up is that we have been seeing uh, some, but very little, resistance in uh, Jewish-Israeli circles to the war. There were hundreds and then you know, uh, about 1,000, then about 3,000 people demonstrating in Tel Aviv and in some other cities across uh, the country uh, against the war and, and for full equality for everyone between the river and the sea. So things like that, which we're talking in fairly small numbers, uh, not really covered by Israeli media. So while it is, interesting and, and I think it's hopeful to still see people come out. That way it has not been a significant part of um, Jewish-Israeli discourse these past few weeks. I think another story that's been unfolding is the way that people are talking about Arab-Jewish relations within Israel, uh, which I actually find to be a bit more promising, slightly more promising, but that's for some other time. Um, going for one last round with our panelists, um, Ahmed, can you tell us, looking at the situation in Gaza, looking at 
the canceled elections, the failed leadership of the PA, the problems you mentioned with Hamas, and we did not at all talk about the PLO. Um, where do you see Palestinians going from here, Palestinians in 67? Where are we going from here? Is there a way to still replace these governments without an election? Uh, is there a way to create an alternative to these uh, failed leaderships? Well, thank you so much. Um, my question would, my answer would be the same uh, answer before. We, the Palestinian people, were living under military occupation for the past 50 years. We are not yet strong enough to uh, for self-determination uh, until, uh, until now. What we need now, we need international uh, support. We need the international community to stand up for its obligation and uh, stop Israeli government from uh, depriving the Palestinian people from their right. I don't think that we will come up with any uh, with, with any um, leadership within the Palestinian community that Israel does not like. If we, the Palestinian people, elected a, a leadership that we all like, Israel will never agree to this leadership. Israel intends to make the Palestinians separated, uh, intends to make the Palestinians in the, uh, in the West Bank different from the Palestinians uh, uh, in Gaza. And this will go on and on until the occupation is ended. We need the occupation to end now and forever. Uh, if we do not end the Israeli occupation, then we, we will always be suffering under uh, autocratic or, or authoritarian regimes. Uh, we will never have our own leaders unless Israel is uh, is ending its, its occupation. And Israel will never end its occupation until there is uh, international consensus to uh, to stop Israel from uh, continuing to violate the Palestinians' rights. So I believe we will never be able to have leadership until the international community, especially the EU, uh, stops supporting Israel and sanctions the Israeli leadership who deprives the Palestinians from their rights. Okay, thank you. Uh, some words. Amjad, um, on to you. Where do we go to next? What happened with all these great, wonderful, inspiring grassroots movements uh, in the face of the old guard of the leadership? What can we expect there? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things that we can describe and mention, but one I think I would particularly highlight, and I think Laura was mentioning this earlier, um, is really the amplification and centering of Palestinian voices in, in the media. Um, and again, this also might sound like a very cliche kind of answer, but it couldn't have been more evident the extent to which that was crucial over the past two, three weeks. You know, in, the, in past rounds of you know, escalations or whatever you want to describe it as, um, there tended to be this big lopsided balance of power in how the media covered it, both, you know, both here locally and, and abroad. And what we saw in the past two, three weeks is the extent to which, especially Palestinians, or I would say kind of two, two elements, which I think, again, Laura mentioned. One is that Palestinians have really taken their narrative into their own hand especially through social media, in which you had Palestinian families and activists, doctors, analysts from Gaza, directly speaking to everyone in the world. It used to be in the past that no one would dare approach them. Palestinians are asserting themselves through whatever communication tools they have to make their voices heard. And that was vital to get updates on the ground, to hear and see what Palestinians were experiencing, to, you know, as much as we can, to see what, the kind of, what bombardment looks like Instead of just like an Israeli army press statement that we hit such and such Hamas uh, operations or tunnels, 
but in fact, we're seeing an, a family being pulled out of the rubble, dead and alive. Like these, these direct forms of communication were absolutely crucial to set the narrative straight, to bring people to understand what, is, what exactly is going on and to counter what used to be taken for granted in the mainstream media about what the authorities are saying. Uh, and we saw this exactly in 48 as well, whereby, you know, instead of, you know, everyone, journalists would tend to go to members of the joint list or the high fault committee, but now you had Palestinian activists who are on the ground who were saying, no, you're going to speak to us and you're going to listen to us. And at the same time that all this was happening and that people were amplifying this and turning their eyes towards these, uh, these Palestinian voices, uh, as Lara mentioned, I do think that in the past, you know, I spoke to a lot of Palestinians about this. We weren't sure if this was our own kind of bubbles or not, but there was this more proactive effort by journalists, especially from abroad, almost, well, certainly not Israeli journalists, but like for, uh, most Israeli journalists, but from abroad in the United States and in Europe to actively seek out Palestinian voices. Uh, and there's this new questioning, uh, both about the issue of Palestinian representation. This is huge credit, I think, um, or being expedited by the Black Lives Movement and protests of last year, whereby it's really forcing media outlets to rethink who are they bringing on to speak, who are they bringing on to write, which is, which is why you saw like the Washington Post and now even New York Times now is bringing on more Palestinians than we usually, than we usually see. Um, and to try to center the reporting on what people are experiencing, to try to bring Palestinian experts, not just as like Palestinians the victims, but Palestinians the experts to articulate their cause, to use, uh, to allow even using the words uh, settler colonialism and apartheid, um, my, our colleague, our 972 edit, uh, editor, Henriette, in, uh, in an LRB podcast was saying like how these words, like the Clinton Apartheid, are making it past kind of the editorial reviews. And that's something which is you know, also unprecedented in many ways compared to, yeah, compared to previous years. So that narrative shift, that discourse shift, you know, it, it's, it doesn't always equate to action on the ground, but that conversation is absolutely vital. And it means that Palestinians have agency. It shows people exactly what's going on on the ground and forces people to question. Um, and again, I think the past two weeks have done more than even the past several years in expediting that. And it's because of this grassroots organizing, because of the infrastructure that's being built. It is this long-term uh, buildup, uh, which operates in incredible ways as we've seen this past while. So, and this is something that we at 972 and FMEP and many organizations, including the ones Ahmed is a part of, uh, like Euromed uh, and so on, it's, the, the, this is the work that we're trying to to push forward, and it needs regular citizens, readers, writers, activists, analysts, etc., to keep uh, to keep amplifying that. Great, thank you very much, Nara. One final question, um, this time from a more perhaps activisty side. Um, we've had a lot of people saying, like, what should we be doing, based in the U.S. or in Europe? What should we be doing to support Palestinians? Right now, um, we've heard part of that answer in a way from Ahmed Amjad, but as someone who's based in the US who works in there and trying to change policy, what should people be doing to support the Palestinian cause for justice and equality right now? Well, I should be clear, I'm not like an, I'm not an activist or an activist leader. Um, I, I can offer a few suggestions. And the first one goes back to, to what Amjad just said, which is listen to Palestinians. This has been my constant refrain. And, and I, I think it's, it's not just incumbent upon um, the media to, to find these voices. It's incumbent upon those of us who engage the media to demand that they do so. 
So for those of us who are not Palestinian, if someone asks us to speak, it's sort of like the whole thing with trying to get women on panels for a long time. If someone invites, invites me onto a new show, the question is, have you talked to Palestinians first? Then are there going to be any? You know, and if you don't know some here, let me send you names of some and here's their contacts. I mean, this is something that, that there can be an active role for, for all of us who work in this space in centering Palestinian voices. And, and really, I think we should feel a moral obligation to do so um, and a policy obligation to do so at this point. Um, in terms of the more grassroots level, look, I mean, this is a moment where, as my colleague Danny Seidemann would say, the cement is wet in Congress for the first time in a long time. This is a time to be trying to put your initials in that cement. And that means, you know, engaging your elected officials, engaging them often, engaging them with education and with, you know, with, with what you want them to do. They are hearing from the other side. If they're not hearing from you, then in their mind, you don't exist. The same goes for media. And I've heard this from friends in journalism, for, for those of us who watch the, with, with, outrage and disgust the, the AP firing of a young journalist because she was outed as someone who had pro-Palestinian tendencies, even though it had nothing to do with anything she was writing and this was when she was in college. I mean, AP is hearing from a lot of people, including from their own journalists, but also from the public. I don't know if that's gonna end up, but that public outcry matters. If you see articles that you think are, are, are not great or you think the framing is wrong, write to the, to the editors, let them know this is a moment when for the first time we are actually seeing real grassroots pressure on, on, on all areas of the public discourse to be more even-handed, to actually let Palestinians speak for themselves and to represent fairly what is happening on the ground. And I think all of us have our part to play in, 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 in pushing that. Um, it's not enough to tweet. It's not enough to express your outrage on social media. Um, this is, th there are things you can do. And, and frankly, if people are really wondering what they can do, they're really at, 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 at a loss, go onto the website of the pro greater Israel, defend Israel groups and see the kinds of activities they're pushing for and try to imagine what it means to do the opposite. You know, whether that is about, you know, getting mad at Facebook for, for quashing, you know, Palestinian voices, you know, getting mad at Twitter for, for limiting accounts that are putting videos on, you know, videos from Israeli media of what's happening on the ground and they're getting quashed if Palestinians tweet them. I mean, there are reports of this. There's a lot of work being done. There are great organizations tracking this. There are ways to get engaged and get involved. Um, but I think this is a moment you know, I, I am wrestling with that anger and, and, and despondency looking at the situation. And as my activist friends say, the, the answer to, to everything being terrible is not depression and giving up. The answer is getting active. So, you know, find, find the place and make your voice heard. If you're going to do it, there is not a better time than now. Thank you so much, Lara. Those were great final words. Um, I really want to thank Ahmed Al-Nouk, uh, Amjad Iraqi, uh, Lara Friedman, and everyone else at the Foundation of Middle East Peace for making this happen. Our friends in Just Vision as well, who co-sponsored the event. Uh, and finally, from us at 972 Magazine, thank you very much for coming and for caring. Thank you, Hagai, for moderating. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Thank you. Thank you.